In the realm of true crime, every crime scene tells a story. Every story has its truths. These are the stories from inside the crime scene tape that separates fact from fiction. The FBI paid him a call, and the purpose of that call, according to the Freedom of Information Act records, was to see whether he would make a good double agent. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Eileen Wilson provides long-awaited answers to a baffling murder that caused a falling out between the FBI and the CIA. Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs here with a story of intrigue. Before journalism, I was an investigator for a Congressional Defense Committee on Capitol Hill. And some of my colleagues were from the CIA and military intelligence. I held a top secret security clearance from the Department of Defense. So I know a little something about the secretive world of spies. In this episode of True Crime Reporter, I interview Eileen Wilson about her new book, Cold War Secrets. It's a true crime story, stranger than fiction. It is a mystery that lives on 50 years after a popular Czech professor vanished from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Was it a case of cloak and dagger among spies? Or was it just a plain old case of murder, driven by lust and the desire for money? Was he a double agent or triple agent that crossed his masters in a Cold War game of spy versus spy? Is he living out his years on a tropical island? Or do his remains lie at the bottom of an abandoned gold mine? Wellsome has done a remarkable job of using the Freedom of Information Act to ferret out the story. Here's our interview about Cold War Secrets. Eileen Wilson, your book, Cold War Secrets, it's kind of got everything. It's got the, the Cold War, as the title says, uh, a 50-year-old murder mystery, the CIA and FBI. How did you get on to this story? Well, uh, a friend of mine who was a journalist, uh, we were just chatting one day about various cases, and she mentioned this case. Um, She had worked as a reporter in Boulder, Colorado in the 1980s and had done um, some research on the Thomas Rhea case. He was the Boulder professor who disappeared in March of 1969. And Julie Hutchison, that was her name, she said to me, you know, with the Cold War over, I'm surprised nobody's ever found him or looked for him. And at that moment, I said, I'm going to do that. So I started to look into the case, and then serendipity happened. Um, Shortly after that, I happened to meet the mother-in-law of one of the children of the major murder suspect. And she had documents, introduced me to um, 
the murder suspect's daughter, and the case began from there. Well, let's start back with Thomas Rio. Tell us about him and how he ends up vanishing. He was a professor, an assistant professor of Russian history at the University of Colorado in Boulder. He had arrived there in 1967 from the University of Chicago. He was a native of Prague, Czechoslovakia. He was a upper middle class resident there. Both of his parents were lawyers. He emigrated to the U.S. uh, right after World War II. He was half Jewish. He went into hiding during World War II. He lived with relatives who were Czech and not Jewish. Uh, Shortly after the war, he moved to the U.S. and enrolled in the University of Colorado, excuse me, University of California, Berkeley. There he got his undergraduate degree and his master's degree and eventually went to Harvard, where he received his PhD in history. What brings him to the university there in Colorado? As far as I could tell from the research, he had reached a plateau at the University of Chicago with regards to tenure. And so he was basically looking for a new job. And the University of Colorado and Boulder were, at that time, They were expanding their Slavic studies department, so he got hired. And you've described him that he was a popular teacher, handsome, thick, graying hair. Yes, he was. uh, He had a lot of charisma. He had very thick hair that he wore swept back off of his forehead. He had a, a lot of female friends, students, teachers alike. His class sizes grew enormously uh, when he came to the University of Colorado in Boulder. And even though it didn't have the prestige of, say, an Ivy League school, Mm -hmm. he really fell in love with Boulder. It was a beautiful little town, mountain town. At that time, it was the 60s, and there was a lot of anti-war activism going on in the campus, but it was a very beautiful, small college town. Now, is his class growing because of his? he's just a popular professor, well-spoken? He was a well-spoken, highly intelligent professor. He was also charismatic. You know, he liked to go to dinner parties with a bottle of wine. He liked to recite poetry. He was a delight to have at parties. He was a life of a party kind of guy, not a party animal, but just, mm-hmm. a, just a lively guest. And when he vanishes, does he leave any trace of anything? And what does everyone think? That's what started the mystery. He was supposed to attend a dinner party that night and didn't show up. And so his friends began calling. Several went by his house, knocked on the door. There was no answer. Someone peeked in and saw that his breakfast table had been set for breakfast, but there was no sign of him. And he just completely vanished. It was during spring break, so he's scheduled to start classes either that following Monday 
or the Monday after that. And he never, he never appeared for classes. And he was a very um, responsible individual. And he always showed up to teach his classes. That was the other thing. He always walked back and forth from his home to, to the campus. He liked fresh air. He loved boulder snow, the lightness of it. It was so different from Prague, which was a heavy, cold snow, that he said he never wanted to leave Boulder. And this was shortly before he vanished. And the police get on the case. What evidence, if any, do they find? They basically, they were told that he had left Boulder to get away from his wife. He had been married for several months, and he was going through a, a, a rocky relationship with his wife. His wife was quite a bit younger than he was, and they were in the process of separating. And so the police were told that, that Thomas Rhea had left Boulder to get away from his wife, but he never returned. And were they given any reason why he had left? And who is telling the police this? It's not clear. In the initial records that I obtained, it just wasn't clear who was spreading that information. I found out later who it was. It was a woman named Galia Tannenbaum who had befriended him some months earlier. And tell us about her. Now, she's not the... the wife that he is separating from. How does he know her? Again, that's really a mysterious relationship. They were both about the same age. She was from the Midwest, most recently from Chicago. Uh, They were very different personalities. He was flamboyant, highly educated. Galia may or may not have had a, a high school diploma. She had been through several marriages or relationships. She had several children. Thomas Rhea loved women who were young and beautiful. Gaia was more more of a matron. She wasn't young and beautiful. She was normal looking, I guess I would say. And she appeared in his life in Boulder, and none of his Boulder colleagues or professors had ever seen them together in Boulder. But Gaia told law enforcement people and others that they met in Chicago when he was at the University of Chicago. And that's entirely possible that they met in Chicago. And she was an FBI informant. She was. I filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the FBI. I also filed requests for Gaia's records. I filed FBI requests for Thomas Rhea's records. I filed appeals for those records. And buried in those FBI records is a statement in which she was working in for a small town out of St. Louis. And she was working as an informant for the FBI. And the records that I looked at suggest that when she moved to Chicago, she continued as an informant for the FBI. And then she followed Thomas Rhea to Boulder. And it's not clear whether she was still 
working as an informant for the FBI at that point in time. I have no records proving that. What was she informing to the FBI about? What was she gathering intel about? So the intel she was gathering when she was a young woman outside of St. Louis, it involved a political corruption case involving the mayor altering the outcome of a local election. When she moved to Chicago, it appeared that she was reporting on communist organizations and communist activities in Chicago. And was the professor, was he, did he have any ties to communism um, since he'd come out of Czechoslovakia and it was in the Soviet sphere at the time? So he was sympathetic to communists, to communism. He was not a communist. He left Prague shortly before the communists took control. So he did not see what they did in Czechoslovakia. He left before the communist takeover and before it became extremely repressive. So he never saw that. His friends certainly did, but he did not. He was a professor of Russian history. He went to the Soviet Union at least on one occasion. He liked Russian. He spoke Russian. I forgot to mention that. He spoke Russian, English, Czech, French, and German. So he liked the culture. He knew the culture. And he was sympathetic to communism. But I don't think he was a communist. That is the period of when J. Edgar Hoover was running the FBI. And just those trips alone and his connections back to Czechoslovakia would have certainly would have gotten the attention of counterintelligence at the FBI. Do you, do you think they zeroed in on him through Gala? So what the records show is that you're exactly right. They, Thomas Rhea, as well as other people who came from countries or emigrated to the U.S. from countries that subsequently became under the communist re- regime were really watched by the FBI and by J. Edgar Hoover, who hated communism with a passion. And the records show that shortly after Thomas Rhea went to Czechoslovakia and to Russia to study and do research, uh, when he came back to the U.S., when he came back to specifically to Harvard, the FBI paid him a call. And the purpose of that call, according to the Freedom of Information Act records, was to see whether he would make a good double agent. In other words, would he, because of his fluency in Russian, his knowledge of the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia, his knowledge of the Soviet Union, they were looking for agents here that could uh, inform them about things going on there and here. So he was questioned by the FBI, and they were trying to ascertain whether he would be a good double agent. And that is in the FOIA documents that I received, Mm -hmm. and it's stated multiple times. Any indication that they actually recruited him? I don't think they recruited him. And it's not clear why 
they didn't recruit him. The records just leave that open. And some of these records are redacted, which means the information is blacked out because it's considered, you know, top security and reporters and other people just don't have access to certain information like that. And the FBI can black that information out. Of course, we reporters know when something like that is redacted after, you know, 50 years, there's something, something was going on. Oh, absolutely. They were, as I said, the redaction was faulty. And so in those records, they forgot to leave out things like vetted as double agent, you know, and then I got other records, the same records from other individuals where that word vetted as double agent had been blacked out. So they weren't, you know, it depended on who they were going to release the records to as to whether that information was redacted or not. Well, this missing persons case rises up to the level of the district attorney. How, how does that happen? Because usually it doesn't get that far. This case is so complex and, multi- and multi-layered. As you said at the beginning, it involves several layers of people. It involves the FBI. It involved the CIA. It involved the local Boulder police. And then it eventually involved the Denver police. Eventually, the Colorado State Police became involved in it. It, There were multiple jurisdictions that became involved in this case. So after Rhea went missing and the rumor mill began just churning out rumors, he he was in New York. He was back in the Czech Republic. There were sightings of him in Canada, sightings of him in the Midwest. Nobody knew where he was. He never returned to teach his classes. Meanwhile, Gaia Tannenbaum, who had befriended him, the mysterious woman from Chicago, she lived in Denver, Boulder and Denver, about an hour apart. And, um, and she went on to befriend several people in Denver, two people specifically, and these two people were subsequently murdered with cyanide. Well, I say they were murdered. Uh-huh. Um, the police never solved the case. They were made to look as if they were suicides. But in my book, I conclude that they were, both of these individuals were murdered and that Thomas Rhea was murdered and that Gallia murdered all three of these of these individuals. And the reason why the district attorney became involved is because once these two individuals were murdered in Denver, then then it it came under the jurisdiction of the Denver district attorney. And there was so much conflicting evidence that he decided to call a grand jury to try to get to the bottom of this case. With so many police agencies involved in a missing persons case in these cases, you know, it just raises my suspicion that maybe he was a double agent or maybe somebody had someone knocked off. What did the evidence you found lead you to believe? When I began my research, I had a completely different 
idea of what had occurred in this case. Number one, I thought Gaia Tannenbaum was is innocent. Number two, I thought Thomas Rhea was indeed a double agent or a triple agent. And the triple would be for the U.S., the Soviet Union, and for Czechoslovakia. So I thought he could have been a triple agent. And I cannot discount that entirely. But my gut tells me that he was not. At the end of the day, I think that he was, unfortunately, he was befriended by a woman named Gaia Tannenbaum and that she subsequently murdered him. And I think that the FBI became involved in this case because it was their job to watch these individuals in this country who may or may not have been double agents and to keep an eye on them. And once Rhea disappeared, I mean, it's certainly the FBI had to think, oh, my God, did we miss something? Did the Russians knock him off? Did they kidnap him and take him back to the Soviet Union? Was he a double agent all along? What's been blown by this? So they had a lot of questions about what happened to this man. And it was, you know, when you speak five languages, you're a natural for being a double Mm -hmm. agent. You know, at that time in the 50s and 60s, I liken it to the time of the Iraq war. There weren't that many people who spoke the languages that the U.S. needed to successfully combat that war. And it was the same thing when the Cold War started. They needed, they being the U.S., they needed people who could speak Russian fluently, who could speak Czech fluently, who could speak German, French, and English fluently. And that's what Thomas Rhea could do. He was highly intelligent. And, you know, I thought initially, you know, I can't discount this idea that he may have been a courier. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were, there were and are top secret installations in Colorado, the closest being Rocky Flats Nuclear Weapons Plant, which was an hour's drive from Boulder. There were a lot of uh, scientists at one time living in Boulder. And there are other uh, military installations within driving distance of Boulder as well. So, you know, I, I thought about that. But in the end, I went back and forth over this to the very day the book was printed as to whether he was a double agent or not. Eileen, we're going to take a short break for a message from our sponsor, and we'll come back and pick it up here in just a moment. I'll be back after this break. Hello, this is Robert, and I want to ask a small favor. Will you please tell your friends who love true crime to follow the True Crime Reporter podcast? As you know, it's one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement experts, victims, and even convicted criminals. And please sign up for my free newsletter. The form is on every page of my website. Finally, I am so thankful to my Apple listeners who have given the podcast five-star reviews. 
Your reviews on all of the channels are extremely helpful in spreading the word about this podcast. Now, back to our episode. I'm talking with Eileen Wilson, the author of Cold War Secrets, The Case of the Vanishing Professor. It's got the CIA in it, the FBI during the J. Edgar Hoover era. And we're talking about this mystery of this Czech professor, Thomas Riata, has has disappeared. And the local district attorney is asking questions, and he's asking questions of a CIA representative about rumors of his being appearing at places and what have you. How did the, the DA come to contact the CIA, and what did the CIA tell him? So... He contacted the CIA because the president of the University of Colorado in Boulder put out a statement that Thomas Rhea was alive and well. And when no one could find Thomas Rhea, and when Thomas Rhea never returned to Boulder, that's when the district attorney decided to contact the CIA. He contacted the local CIA rep in Denver who went to his office and they chatted. And the CIA rep told him that we were told that Thomas Rhea was alive and well by the FBI. That's what the CIA told the district attorney. Mm -hmm. When the FBI found out what the CIA had said, and this reached J. Edgar Hoover, he went ballistic at that point. He demanded that the head of the CIA recall this CIA operative to Washington and undergo questioning as to what FBI agent told the CIA that Thomas Rhea was alive and well. Well, the the CIA rep in um, Denver refused to disclose that. He didn't want to get a rank-and-file FBI agent in trouble. So J. Edgar Hoover cut off relations. This is extraordinary. He cut off relations with the FBI. And then he cut off relations with all the other intelligence agencies in Washington over this one case of this missing professor. You know, Eileen, I've got a background in national security and all, and this all just says to me something else was going on here. Was, uh, Was the professor in some kind of deep cover? And why do you think Gayla Tannenbaum murdered the two people? And I, and I think you, you think she murdered the professor as well with cyanide? Because his body was never recovered. Well, it comes down to money and she and, and possibly sex. She thought Thomas Rhea was wealthy and he was not. He owned some artwork that may have had some value. He owned his house. 
Uh, he still had a mortgage on it. He had a bank account. She had no money. And so I think that's why she murdered him. I, I think that the other, other reason she may have murdered him was she may have been in love with him and he spurned her. And she was very angry about that. What about the other two victims? Motive? What was your, do you think the motive was there? It, uh, in the case of the, she murdered the two people in Denver. One was a man, one was a, a woman. And I think in the case of the man, the motive there was also money. This elderly gentleman had some assets and she wanted those assets. She needed those assets. She had children. And she had no visible means of support. Did you find any hint in the FBI documents you obtained about what they had concluded about the murders? I don't recall mm -hmm. that they came to any conclusion with regard to the murders. Um, but they were heavily involved in covering up Galia's role yeah. in the murders, they said um, it, it's six months after Thomas Rhea vanished, a, a local older detective went to the FBI and said, do I need to start looking for Thomas Rhea's body or what's going on? And the FBI agent said, let me get back to you. And this is all in a memo. And he called the Boulder detective back and he said, quote unquote, I spoke with another agency. He said looking for looking for his body would be a waste and a waste of time. He was alive and well. So even six months after his disappearance, the FBI was still uh, spreading that misinformation that Thomas Real was still alive and well, when in fact he was dead and two other people were also dead. Now, you found something of a smoking gun related to Galia Tannenbaum's involvement in documents. Explain what you found there in terms of her misspellings. Yeah, that's kind of how I solved this case. So uh, a little backup on documents. Um, when I began my research, I asked the Boulder PD for all the documents on Thomas Rhea. They gave me one piece of paper, and that was the missing persons report. And so, uh, but eventually, um, I filed what's called a Colorado Open Records Act request. Yes. And I got about two feet of documents. And in those documents were many, many letters that Galia had written. And Galia had many flaws, but one of her flaws was she could not spell. And she misspelled the same words over and over again the same way. So for example, take considerable. She would spell considerable as C-O-N-C-I-D instead of C-O-N-S-I-D. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. 
And, um, and this is throughout the documents. And so I found letters that she wrote in which she forged Thomas Rhea's name using these what I called signature misspellings. And I found these misspellings in documents that she forged. She forged them to make them appear as if they were written by Thomas Rhea. And she forged a will and other documents of Gus Ingerson. He was the second murder victim. The same misspellings found in those documents. Another murder victim was a, a woman named Barbara Egbert. Again, same misspellings in um, in documents, you know, alleged suicide documents that were supposedly written by Bar- Barbara Egbert. So all these misspellings, I argue, were like fingerprints, and they led to one mind, one mind, that one mind, and that one mind was Gaia Tannenbaum. And were all of these forged documents somehow financial instruments or, or means of, of obtaining money for her under these false pretenses? Most of the documents were related to ways of obtaining money. Many letters uh, in which she pretended to be Thomas Rhea um, when she tried to sell his house, for example, when wrote letters to his credit card companies with the second murder victim. Um, she forged his will, and there were misspellings in that document. With the third murder victim, Barbara Egbert, she forged her last will and testimony, and also sort of her suicide note. Also, Galia, letters that she wrote to family and friends that were unrelated to these three cases had these same mm-hmm. misspellings. So it was the same misspellings in numerous documents over a long period of time. Did she succeed in obtaining money from any of these victims by using these forged documents? She succeeded in obtaining about seventy or $80,000 okay. from Thomas Rhea's estate. Um, I would say very little from uh, Gus Ingerson, just a couple of hundred dollars in forged checks. Um, and as far as Barbara Egbert goes, very little. So there was a motive for murder here. There was a motive for murder. In the first two cases, in Rhea's case, I feel it was money, and as I mentioned, possibly sex. Mm-hmm. In the case of Gus Ingerson, it was money. And in the case of Barbara, that was a difficult case to figure out because it wasn't money. And it was only Barbara's family that put forth the theory that Galia killed Barbara because Barbara knew something about these two other murders. Mm-hmm. Do you think Galia committed other murders that we don't know about? That's an excellent question. And I talked to one of the original uh, homicide investigators in this case in Denver who worked the case, who met Galia. And I said, you know, I came across some documents suggesting that Gaia may have committed other murders in Chicago. And he said he was very interested in that. And he said, boy, if you could hunt that down, I'd like to follow up on that. 
And in fact, I couldn't hunt it down and I didn't follow up on it. So I just don't know. I, I mean, there's, 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 this is a baffling case because Galia, I mean, she, prior to moving to Colorado and to, Bo- uh, to Denver, Galia was a petty criminal. She was an embezzler. She had done time in the Illinois State Prison for Women for embezzlement. She had forged checks. She'd skipped out on rent. She was a petty criminal, but she wasn't a violent criminal. So she didn't have, that I could find out, that I could find. She didn't have behind her, you know, a, a foreground of violence. And I just didn't think that a person at the age of 40 that had several children, young children and grown children, would just overnight become a serial killer. Mm-hmm. It just didn't add up to me. And in many ways, it still doesn't. But I have to go by the facts that I uncovered in the book, and, and they point in a different direction. Well, this certainly would be embarrassing to the FBI at that time to have a informant who, as they would say, has left the reservation. You know, I mean, I think that's why J. Edgar Hoover was so put out with this case, because they had interviewed Thomas Rhea as a possible double agent. They had interviewed Galia numerous times. They had used her as an informant. He was in his twilight years. President Nixon was then president. And it would have been, you know, these agencies do a lot of cover up out of embarrassment. Oftentimes it's not national security. It's just plain embarrassment. And so anything he could do to bury this case and cover it up, he was prepared to do. And that, of course, is what caused that break between the FBI and the CIA. Is it fair to say you think that Gallia Tannenbaum got away with murder? Gallia Tannenbaum got away with the murder of three people. But Gallia Tannenbaum did not get away. She was... In the midst of all of this controversy involving these three unexplained disappearances and or deaths, Gallia was incarcerated at the state hospital in Pueblo, Colorado. It's about a two-hour drive from Denver. And while she was there, and she was going back and forth to Denver for hearings, while she was incarcerated at the state hospital. And this is the mental she, hospital. It's the, it, correct. Yes. It was the mental hospital. While she was incarcerated in the state hospital, she took a massive dose of cyanide and killed herself. So she got away with murder, but did she get away? Oh, I don't think so if she killed herself. Of course, this opens up another can of a mystery of how does she get cyanide into a state mental hospital? Again, another unexplained aspect of this case. After she died, another 
insane round of media attention here in Colorado to this high-level murder suspect and possible double agent herself who kills herself in a state hospital with cyanide. So the Colorado Bureau of Investigation became involved at the behest of the Colorado governor, and they did an investigation of her death. And they concluded she may have brought the cyanide with her into the state hospital in her vagina. I don't believe that. And the reason I don't believe it, maybe I'm a woman, and I think that that would be a very dangerous undertaking for many reasons, but I don't believe that's where the cyanide came from. When they did the investigation, it turned out they did have cyanide in the laboratory there at the state hospital. And the cyanide, that laboratory was not always locked. So someone like Dahlia could have gotten in and taken some of that cyanide. And and that brings me to a whole other part of the saga, which is while she was in the state hospital, she started to lose it psychologically. And she began to boast to people about all the people she had killed, Mm -hmm. including Thomas Rhea. How do I know this? I know this from depositions that were taken after Gaia's death. Gaia's family filed a a wrongful death lawsuit against the state hospital, and a number of depositions were taken. So there were depositions taken of her psychiatric advisors and the psychiatrists who oversaw her care, as well as other people in the state hospital. This is all sworn testimony under oath. And Gaia started to boast in the state hospital about people she killed, including Thomas Rhea. Did she reveal what happened to his body? When she was in the state hospital, she was an, uh, the one thing I forgot to add about Gaia was she was an incredible artist. She was a very talented artist. And, um, and she began drawing before she could walk. And she drew a, a, a picture of a painting in a, in a woods with a, a red bird and she, in the midst of a forest, and she told her psychiatric advisor or counselor, she said, here lies my secret. And this painting was allegedly done around Aspen, Colorado. And I thought, okay, she buried the body there. Mm -hmm. Well, I had to revise that thinking because it was the dead of winter. There would have been snow on the ground, and it would have been very hard to dig a grave in Colorado at that time in 1969, in the middle of the winter. So I had to eliminate that idea, which brought me to this idea of, and many other people have have come to the same idea, that she dumped Thomas Rhea's body 
down a mine. Now, just recently, as I was finishing the book, I went up into the mountains outside of Denver, and there are mines that are, uh, people that are not from Colorado won't understand this, but they dug, they being miners, dug throughout Colorado for gold and silver. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of mines that are not covered. They're just open pits. And in my book, I show a picture of the Ohio mine. And it's my gut feeling that that's where Thomas Rhea is. He's at the bottom of the Ohio mine. And the reason I say, and it's terrible to think about. And the reason I say that is because uh, it's on a dirt road. It was accessible by vehicle. Uh, it's a huge mine. I almost fell into it myself when I went up to look at it. I had to like grab a little bush. It was so deep and it was a huge hole. And right nearby, the reason I say the Ohio mine, which was a gold mine, is because within maybe a thousand yards of that mine was a mine owned by Gustav Ingerson, Gallia's second murder victim. And he was an amateur miner. And Gaia often went up into the mines, up into the foothills with Gus, looking at mines. And I know for a fact she went into Gus's mine. And the Ohio mine, which was not owned by Gus, was within walking distance. And if you had a body, all you would have to do is take the body, drag it six feet, dump it in, and dump it into a hole. Or that's one scenario. The second scenario is he was alive. And they both went up there and she pushed him in. Mm-hmm. Now, Hannah Rhea, that's Thomas Rhea's wife that he was estranged from. I interviewed her many times. She's still alive. She lives in, in, in New York State. And she thinks that's what, ha- what happened to him. And, and as do I. And the homicide investigator said, because we went to the Ohio mine, and I said, well, she could have drugged, dragged his body up this hill and dropped it into the mine. And he said, well, have you ever tried to, to carry a dead body? I said, no, I haven't. But it's not very far. Um, so those are those are the two scenarios. Now, mm-hmm. what have I done with that? I'm stuck because fifty years have passed. There's been a lot of debris. Those mines are really dangerous, and for somebody to go into that mine, they would have to they would have to be experienced miners experienced investigators and very well prepared well it sounds like this story ends at the bottom of a dangerous mine uh, we've been talking with eileen Wilson, the author of cold war secrets it certainly is a, a story of intrigue involving a vanishing czech professor who was vetted to be a double agent by the fbi and the cia's involved tell us where we can uh, our listeners can get the book Amazon or through Kent State Press, which published the book, either of those places. 
Well, Eileen Wilson, thank you so much for joining us here on True Crime Reporter. Well, I really appreciate your having me. Thank you. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast. So please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness. Please tell your friends who love true crime that they can bypass secondhand tales and get their true crime fix here with authentic stories straight from the source. Tell them that True Crime Reporter is one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement victims and even convicted criminals. And sign up for my free newsletter on the homepage of TrueCrimeReporter.com. It's your gateway to a world of knowledge and awareness in the realm of true crime and your personal safety. Thanks for listening, and until we meet again, be prepared, don't get scared. This is Robert Riggs reporting.